Gloucester, Gloucester, Gloucester. Welcome back to yourselves. You didn't go anywhere, so I don't know what you're welcome back to. Except me. You're welcoming yourselves back to me. The state of Gordodess. Gordodum. Gordidity. Yes, Gordidity, I'd say it is. And today we're going to get such a dose of Gordidity that certainly stupidity and rapidity will overwhelm your sense of solidity. So, this is story day. And I thought I would tell you two stories on opposite polars of my experience in the music magazine business from 1976, basically to 1994. I was the founder and publisher of Musician Magazine. And a lot of crazy stuff happened in that period. Most of it good, but a lot of stupid stuff. And I'm going to give you uh, first a good story, and then I'm going to tell you a stupid stuff story. And I'm hoping that my wonderful engineer who's here assisting me every week, Mr. Jim Capillo, oh, I noticed he turned the volume up on that line, (laughs) will be chiming in. Hi, Jim. Hey, Gordo. I know, baby. All right. So, the first story, and I'm not trying to blow my own horn because this happened. It wasn't something we tried to happen. And a lot of you might enjoy the results of the story. In 1980, we had been going for about three years as Musician Magazine. We started in 1976, but we were out in Colorado. We were a music educators magazine for schools and teachers and marching bands and blah, blah, blah. Nobody had ever heard of us. Nothing was happening. Nobody was interested. But by 1980, we had attracted the attention of Billboard magazine, who decided they wanted to buy a consumer magazine, and the editors had told them that musician was the one that they should look at. So they were sniffing around. They hadn't bought us yet. However, we were there. And so uh, we got a little more, how shall I put it, not radical, let's just say aggressive about marketing ourselves, thinking that maybe we were about to be acquired by a bigger company that would be able to pay these bills. (laughs) And so we were at the Chicago NAM convention, which was the National Association of Music Merchants. And it is really the big kahuna. They have about 25,000 music dealers come uh, and their associated hangers-on and sycophants and posses. And they come and look at all the new equipment basically a year before it hits the market. And in 1980, the shift was happening from the old uh, music business, which was really, well, it was mainly uh, marching band instruments and brass and tubas. They dominated the, uh, the industry. Companies like CG Con and Selmer and even Yamaha was bigger in marching band than they were in rock and roll. But rock and roll was coming on. Obviously, the Beatles have been around for a long time. And the sort of electronic revolution was happening where suddenly all those effects Everybody could play like Jimmy, and everybody could play like Santana, and they had synthesizers and new mics, and all this stuff was booming. Well, that was one thing that helped musicians, because we helped explain all the new stuff to the bands. 
But we were at this National Association of Music Merchant Convention in Chicago, and we had decided we were going to try to throw a concert to raise our visibility and also jolly up the dealers that were carrying musician and, of course, the advertisers. But we weren't as well known as a bunch like Rolling Stone, like Billboard, like Guitar Player Magazine, which was as boring as you could possibly be, all buttons and dials. And they never did anything exciting at the at the conventions. So we were throwing this show, and we were going to put on a fellow named Albert Collins, also known as the Iceman. And we had this terrific, incredible um, promotion director named Paul Saxman, who was on my third show. And he is just the coolest guy in the world. And he was way outcooled me. And he way knew music much more. He has a 50,000 albums, vinyl albums, still in his basement. He doesn't know what to do with them. Um, but he plays them, and he knows where everyone, every song on every side is. So he had talked me into doing this concert, and we got Albert Collins at a fairly decent rate. And he was going to play in the Marriott in downtown Chicago. But we were – the Marriott runs under one of those big streets, state streets or whatever. And the side we were on had a concert hall that was, let's just call it, intermediate size. And then if you walked under the road in the tunnel thing, it had the main section of the hotel, and it had a gigantic concert hall which had been rented that night by Fender. Well, Fender Guitars was huge in those days, but they had just been sold by CBS. They were very corporate, and they were not really very hip. So all of the images you had of Jimi Hendrix and Fender and all that, they, they, they had kind of stumbled in on it. The great stars love Fender, but they weren't marketing to them. They were like trying to sell amps to schools, you know, and, and acoustic guitars to schools because that was a huge part of the business still. So they were doing a pretty corny party, and it was like checkered tablecloths and sort of cornball food and uh, lots of popcorn on the tables. And they had some banjo band that was playing with a couple of Fender country artists. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't anybody huge. It was much more to jolly them up, you know. And, um, but it, wasn't, uh, it was in a convention hall, not on the show hall. So it was to party, so to speak. Well, so we were about a hundred yards from this, our hall. Well, we had contracted to do Albert Collins, and about two weeks before we get a call from uh, their manager saying, hey, we would love to have this other manager be able to talk to you about this band that is, has opened for us before, and we'd love to have you see this guy, and he's probably going to be pretty cheap. And so this guy, Chesley Milliken, calls us, and he is the manager, and he sends us this demo tape for this guy whose name is Stevie Ray Vaughn, except they called him Little Stevie Vaughn in those days. And they were so desperate to get in front of the music convention and especially the manufacturers to get an endorsement deal and a free guitar that they said that they would play for free. Well, that was right up our alley. An opening that would play for free. Well, we didn't know. And, of course, we have that demo tape. Paul Saxman still has that original demo tape on tape, you know, celluloid, that is probably worth quite a bit. I mean, at least to a collector, you know, who's a Stevie Ray fan. 
Uh, so it was not as slick as the album, but it was all the same songs as their first album, you know. Um, so Stevie Ray Vaughan, do we say, yes, you can come up and play. So flash forward, we're now the night of the concert. Well, Fender's party is going on. Uh, in Chicago, it's not like in L.A. when they do the show. It's all in one gigantic building. Here, it was spread around. So the whole convention, which was big, wasn't necessarily in our building. So we did not have a huge crowd. But the interesting thing is a lot of the cognoscenti, the music agents and the reps and musicians themselves who were demoers for Fender, they had heard about this guy. And so there were quite a few of them there, including the ad guy had come down. He said, I heard about this guy. And I said, well, that's better than me because I haven't. So Stevie Ray Vaughan goes on and he was opening for Albert Collins and the, what were they called? The Ice Crushers or something like that. And Stevie Ray goes on and he is unbelievable. I mean, we are all just, our mouths are open at this guy. Um, going like, oh my God, nobody's ever heard of this guy. And look, he's playing for us. We've kind of discovered him. And so Stevie Ray finishes, and Albert has said uh, to us all behind the scenes, yeah, I'm going to get him up to play on my set because I've heard him, and this guy's so great. we got to do some stuff together. But that was a long way off because Chicago is a union town, and it's more than a union town. It's the capital of unionism in Chicago, in America. And it's <coughs> the hall we were in was actually owned, and the Teamsters too, by, uh, sorry, the hall we were in and the Marriott Hall, too, were uh, owned by the Teamsters. And they own McCormick Place. And they own the Statler Hilton th Hotel. I mean, they had so invested in all these things. But so it was a union place. You did not do anything without the union. And so Stevie Ray finishes his set. And there's one big, what they call the green room, the big room where everybody gets ready to go on. And... We didn't know this at the time, but Stevie Ray had apparently retired to the room, and there was a young lady who was one of the roadies' young ladies, and later on in the biography of him came out, it was known that he was kind of a sex addict, and it was just like anywhere, anytime, and whatever. So the band, the Ice Crushers, is up on stage, okay, and they're comping like James Brown. The band would come and do a number or two, and then there's Jim and Jim Brown, and they're... And they're comping away. And they're going, ladies and gentlemen, Albert Collins! Well, Albert didn't come on. Albert didn't come on because the door to the dressing room was locked. And his guitar was in there, his Fender guitar. He would only play on his Fender guitar. He would not play on any other guitar because the uh, Stevie Ray, other roadie, had another guitar that was not in with Stevie Ray. He would not play it. So the band goes on and does another song. Meanwhile, we go to try to get the door unlocked from uh, the guy. He goes, I can't. That's not my station. And there was like a line between the red carpet and the blue carpet. He goes, I can't cross into that zone. And he's got the key right there. And he's standing two and a half feet from the door itself. He's got the key right there on this keychain that's all got those zip things where you pull out the chain kind of thing. Oh, yeah. And I'm going, you got to go, I'll be fired. And the shop steward's gone this weekend. Nobody can open that door for you tonight till tomorrow kind of thing. And I'm going, I mean, unless they come out. So we pounded on the door, no answer. We figured it's locked from both sides because the locks were massive in this thing. And... 
So I say, you mean you can't do it, but you mean that I could just grab that key off your belt and that I could do it? And the guy goes, I'm not answering that question. So I grabbed the key because he showed me, I pulled the chain right to the length of the thing, stick it in the door and open it. The door flies open. I'd make it fly open. And there is Stevie Ray tucking in his shirt and his pants. The lady is tucking in her, she's quickly getting her clothes back on. And uh, fortunately, there was that second, well, the guys, because then one of their roadies, uh, who was a friend of one of the, the guys who the girlfriend was, he comes running in and grabs Albert's guitar and goes running out. And he goes out and he runs up on stage, hands it to Albert backstage. Ladies and gentlemen, Albert Gallus! And he goes, ah, and he comes on. He does the set. Uh, he gets about half an hour until he calls Stevie Ray up. Okay. But in the meantime, in that half an hour, we've opened the door. We walk in. Stevie Ray, I just want to tell you how great that was. And that blah, blah, blah. And that we actually pooled together some of our travel cash. And we pooled together about 300 bucks cash, and I gave him a personal check for 200 We gave him $500 for playing to cover all, because that's what they'd spent to come to town. And the guy was so amazing. We said, <laughs> I hand him the money. And he goes, oh, man, that's awesome. Here, have a hit of this. And he's smoking a joint, and he hands the joint to me and Paul. And so we smoked the joint. With Stevie Ray Vaughan, okay? Just to say, that's my first story. And he did go on and play with Albert, and he was incredible. And by then, all the Fender people were down there to hear Albert, who was already a Fender user. But they hadn't wanted him for an endorsee because blues, and he was black, and you know how that is. This is 1980, really part of the 70s. And so they weren't embracing the musicians as much as they later did when they became king of, of rock and roll. But the whole great story was the whole, the babe, the guitar, the union, and smoking the joint with Stevie Ray. <laughs> now the story doesn't end there. Why? Because a couple of the Rolling Stone editors were there. Rolling Stone magazine, who were friends with our friends, because the editors never get competitive and snarly. There, it's the ad guys and the publishers. So they're like, "Hey, come to our party tomorrow, night, two nights from now." They're saying to our, "This is great," because this next thing we hear, Rolling Stone decides to book Stevie Ray Vaughan to play their party in two nights to help him cover the expenses. They gave him less than 500 bucks. I think they gave him 100 bucks. <laughs> so he plays at their party for all the, they didn't have any more advertisers there than we did. That was a tiny little party across town in some club too. So it was not a huge event, but three weeks later, Stevie Ray Vaughan's on the cover of Rolling Stone. He gets signed by Epic, his album comes out, it goes zooming up the charts, the rest is history. He becomes a rock star, a megastar, and like Buddy Holly, he dies in a plane crash about a year and a half into it. So, did we have something to do with them getting heard by Rolling Stone? Yes. Did that have something to do with him being on the cover of Rolling Stone? Yes. Did that have something to do with him becoming one of the great successes of our age? I'd like to think that Musician Magazine and my buddy Paul Saxman played a part in that story. That's my first story. So, do you still have the joint? <laughs> I should have kept the root yeah, I Can you imagine? I figured you'd frame it or something. You'd have the DNA. Well, you see, it wasn't my place to say, give me the roach. Because I just passed <laughs> it. 
And I got two hits in the round, but like Stevie Ray, you know, as he practically ate it. He sucked that stuff down. And then we found out when we read the biography that he was kind of also straight into heroin and harder drugs. So, was, so what happened I, with the girl? I never knew another thing. And I'm not sure the roadie other found out about it because I don't know if the other guy who run there and get the guitar, he uh, liked Stevie. He was buddies with him. So I don't know if he told yeah, the that, cuckold about it. That was yeah. kind of the end of the... Hippie, but, hit the hippie yeah. age, you know, free love and all that exactly. stuff. Exactly. And that's not the kind of situation you could ever create or steer for. Right. I mean, it was right. just happened. All of it, including what Chesley Milliken giving him the tape. And I was saying, yes, at the last second, I made that. So it wasn't, we didn't, you know, we said uh, Albert Collins and Stevie Ray Vaughan. We didn't say have much time to promote him, Stevie Ray. Right. So right. Now, would you like to throw a story or would you like me to hit number two, my silly? Well, it's up to you. Yeah. I mean, and I don't have anything as exciting Pressing. as that. Well, why don't I uh, enter into my second story that's uh, okay. kind of fun. Um, I mean, this involves Gloucester. But we used to do these trade shows. As I mentioned, we would have a booth and we would take our latest cover because you get the show issue. And, of course, you sold ads for the show issue. Like, oh, it's going to be there. All the dealers will see. You got to promote your product. You got to be seen promoting all these fancy, sexy new products. And... Um, this was later, so rock and roll had really caught on. And all the, I mean, rock and roll had caught on before, but the music industry was like a time lag. Their success in pushing the real electronic stuff began after the successes of the artists. So by 1988, everything was cooking. But by 1980, no, it was, they were trying to break those markets. MXR was still trying to push the fuss pedals. But by now, in this story, everything was up. Eric Clapton was a god. And we'd already had him like four times uh, on the cover. But we did this just hysterically funny cap, um, cover where it was, he was so relaxed and he loved this cover. He, he later on called Warners and said, you know, that's my favorite cover ever. They had taken this picture of him at a junkyard and he's standing in the foreground just like this, like catching him on a day off, having a good time, doing something he likes. And there's huge slag heap of a London junkyard behind him. Not a dump, but a junkyard, meaning really interesting stuff, probably way before World War II was in here, you know. And so he's on the cover with the junk, and he's like, and the headline, the editor was so clever, 62 Regents. Sorry, I'll say it again. 62 reasons it's great to be Eric Clapton. And then the face started on the cover. You know, people light lighters when you walk in the room. Uh, you're the king. I mean, there were all these things that were Eric Clapton saying, uh, you don't lie, you don't lie, you don't lie. You know, it's like each one was funny. And each of the 62, he loved, okay? Um, and some of the 62 were things that were from the article about how haunted he was by old blues guys that he felt in a way his whole generation of rockers had kind of borrowed or ripped off and never really credited them and took the credit for themselves. I mean, even the Stones admit they did, you know, and everybody, you know. And uh, um, so he uh, really talked a lot about the ghost of some of the origins of the blues music that he had played. So it's a pretty intimate thing. So anyway, we're going to the show. He loved the interview. He loved the thing. So we have this poster blown up that's huge. Uh, definitely bigger than that turned upright, more like this. It was gigantic because you had to have it in your booth and people walk down the halls and they see it miles away and they come over and they get the show issue. Right. Or they would get a ticket to whatever show we were doing. And the year we, I mean, what, 
we the shows got better and better. We had Frank Zappa, we had Robin Ford and the Yellow Jackets. One year we had uh, Eddie Van Halen and Steve Morse, who was of the Dixie Dregs, and Clapton's guitarist, this trio. Uh, we had uh, John Hyatt. We had some great names. We had Robert Cray, the guitarist. We had Tower of Power. Anyway. Our concerts really became really fought over for tickets. You know, when we did the Eddie Van Halen one, oh, my God, the people. Because it was him playing really complicated, good music, not, you know, Van Halen music. So um, anyway, so it had been our show issue, and we blew this thing up, and it was was a spectacular damn show for us. Uh, That had been uh, an Anaheim, California show where every musician – not necessarily people who worked in music stores, but a lot of them. But all the musicians would figure out a way to get a ticket to the show and come to. And they all came with their spandex-clad um, groupies and who were not wearing much more than that. <laughs> Just the skin, as they say. And it was like... And that was where I learned the lesson that one of these guys, I saw one of these guys come along with the big hair and the black and all this, like looking like the Ramones and all this. At some point, he got caught on something as he went by, and he had a wig on, and his wig came off, and he was just an old 30, 40 year old. He's <laughs> all done up as a rocker. And, but with these young chickies all adoring them. And so, anyway, we have this poster at our booth. Um, show ends, we come home, and we've got the poster, and we have it on our wall in the office. And in 1994, uh, Billboard decided they were going to move everything, all their properties to New York. No more Nashville for three of their magazines, Gloucester for our ma- – you know, we were all – we had to go to New York. So, uh, okay, well, so we did that, but we started packing up stuff, and, you know, we closed the office in Gloucester down. They moved away. I stayed here. I didn't go to New York. And yet – so I got to take a lot of the music ma- musician magazine memorabilia. So I have a musician magazine um, museum I've set up in this chicken shack, Gloucester Chicken Shack. All the ceiling is covered with uh, shrink-wrapped covers. But there are some of these giant posters that are on the walls. Now, that poster was so great that we shrink-wrapped it. So it not only had lasted all those years, but it was in great condition. Now, we flash forward to Gloucester. And, of course, the blue guitar has come into port. The blue guitar, as you know, once again, was Eric Clapton's yacht that we all were sure of, and we'd all been told that, and of course, at one time or other, it probably was. But while the paper was saying, oh, yes, Eric Clapton's boat's here, and all this, and people were, oh, Eric Clapton, and all this, so I get the bright idea that I'm going to get my poster, and I am going to package it up, and I'm going to write a letter about, hi, Eric! The Donna hey, Rousseau, buddy. yes, Donna Rousseau of Warner Brothers, who was the publicity director, and Eric loved her and she loved him, always said this was your favorite cover of any music magazine that covers. So I have preserved this poster all year, and I want you to have it for the yacht. Put it in the laundry room. And, oh, yeah, if you're here for any amount of time and you want a shower or a drink or just, you know, some place. Because when you cruise, sometimes you want a night, you know, or an afternoon where you just get in a house. Um, and I said, here's my phone number. Feel free to call me up. So he had this big thing with these big long arm off the thing so that when you came in or even his launch, you'd go to the end of the arm dock your boat and then the arm had a little walkway 
Oh, no, it did. No, the arm had a laundry line kind of thing where you dock your boat and then you pulled yourself in the boat in, got off on the stairway, and then pulled the boat out on the clothesline, you know? Right. And then the boat sat away from the boat. Yeah, so, so it would never hit you. It wouldn't hit. Nor when the people were getting on and off it would it hit. So I pull into that thing, and um, there is their launch. So I carefully put the poster there, carefully put the letter and all that on top, and the crew guy appears at the side. And he's like, oh, what are you doing? You know, And I'm like, oh, it's okay. Yeah, I'm like Fraser. You know, I'm like, oh, you know, Kelsey Grant. I'm like, oh, it's okay. I, you, Eric loved this t- copy. You know, oh, I left a note, so I'm just leaving it. Yeah, throw it away if you don't want it. And the guy's like looking at me like scratching his head, kind of like with his head tilted like, the more he said nothing, the more I was going to be like a performing monkey, which, of course, I was. You know? and, uh, At that point. Say hi, Eric. Enjoy. And then I leave it. And as I say, the guys look at me. De- never moved. Never, you know, never tilted, you know, never said a word. So I get in the boat to show them I'm not threatening. I'm, I'm backing off. You know, I'm now drifting away from you. I'm not trying to enter the boat. There's the poster. So I go back. I feel so good. I got it. Sitting by the phone. I mean, I'm, I'm sure he's not going to call, especially now. But he might call at some point. And uh, three days Boston, later, yeah, 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 three days later. I'm reading in the paper. The common misconception that this is Eric Clapton's yacht. It's owned by Abu Kabi Sabiaga. A uh, you know, <laughs> a, uh, he uh, sold it eight years yeah, ago. Exactly, and uh, blah 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 blah. And so I'm like, what? And then by then I go. Do I go back out and go to the side and say, excuse me, can I have the poster back? Long gone, it's right? It's long gone. I go back the next day, the thing's gone. But of course, when the thing was gone, I didn't know yet that it wasn't his. Yeah. So I first, oh, yeah. oh, they left. I didn't throw it away. Oh, they took my poster of him. <laughs> well, it might be in the stateroom. Me and Eric, yeah. Well, so that was the story, and the laugh was on me. But the addendum to the story is, of course... My partner, Sam Holsworth, who is partner at Musician Magazine, he is a trustee of Cape Ann Museum. And one of the other trustees of Cape Ann Museum's daughter is on the board with him. So she said, oh, my father's out of time. Come on out on, the, on his boat and let's have a drink out there. He's actually going to be back later this evening, so I'd love to have you meet my dad and all this. So he goes, oh, where are we going? And they get in the launch to go out to the blue guitar. Ah. And so they're there the whole time. Oh, it's a common misconception. No, Clapton never owned the boat. He and of never course, owned we it? had been told that Johnny Depp now owned it. So it was like... <laughs> You know, all these people, hi, Johnny, from their boats, you know, and Johnny Depp, and everybody's talking, oh, Johnny Depp never made a bad movie, and also, I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm a great, oh, maybe Johnny's got my poster, you know, <laughs> and, because uh, I never knew that they threw it away, or that it wasn't Johnny right after, uh, right, um, right. Uh, Eric, because I talked to Abu Kabi, Abu Dudu, you know, had just bought it to Straw, where he <laughs> bought it, because, you know, he, Johnny Depp didn't want to have anyone know he owned it, so it was bought by an employee, and then he was the real owner. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so then he said, yeah, not only that, but there was no Johnny Depp. There's no Eric Clapton. And no, they don't have the poster. <laughs> and he doesn't even remember because he wasn't on board. So probably one of the guys. Just one of the guys away. took it, right. Just, or he took it home. I hope yeah. he took it home. Someone took but it But I got a feeling he threw it away. But it was so beautiful. And, of course, I always felt like such an idiot. Because I, I, I it was one of those things like where you let your desire overrule your 
intelligence because you're going, yeah. and then you're just as bad as every groupie. Oh, hi, Eric. Oh, I know you're going to Go on out. You know, and I just so. That's funny. So can you match any of those? You got yeah, three well, minutes to, uh, three to minutes. tell me your. Uh, you're, you're not being kind to me. You got your rock store. Well, we can go over uh, 30, but you, yeah, said you had your 30. big shot story. Uh, well, it's not anything like that. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I played in a bunch of bands when I was younger. And um, What did you play? Uh, keyboards. Oh, I didn't know that. Started out with accordion, oh. Ethel Dutton. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, in any event, I mean, I found out early on that the accordion wasn't really cool, so I transitioned over to keyboards and, well, you know. In any event, I was involved in a bunch of bands, and we had horns in them. So I was always interested in bands that had horns, and especially rock bands that had horns. I mean, there was a bunch from out there, Chicago. Oh, totally. Chase. Light, Chase, Remember Lighthouse. Chase? Oh, yeah. yeah, Bill Chase. Yeah. Yep. Lighthouse, uh, of course, BS&T. Yeah. Oh, and... Uh, so there was a bunch yeah. of them, but... Um, oh, BS&T. I thought they were the best. Oh, they the were... Chicago was pretty good, too. Yeah, they yeah, they were yeah. another... Yeah. Well, they were a freight train back then. Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 So eventually I became involved in the, I joined the Chicago fan club, the yeah. national fan club. Yeah. And we went When you say Chicago, of course you mean Chicago Transit Authority. Yeah, CTA. Yeah, yeah the band, Chicago the band. I know, I'm kidding, but they dropped that. But yeah, 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 they had to. They got sued yeah. or something <laughs> happened. City, right, yeah. So we went to Vegas for our first uh, our first fan club convention. They always had the band there. You know, the guys are pretty accessible. Yeah. And, you know, we were able to... Have a meet and greet with them. Terry, Terry Bozio? No. Terry Kath. He, Kath, that's right. Bozio was the yeah, other band, yeah. Yeah, Kath, he uh, accidentally shot himself in 1970. Shot and killed himself? Oh, yeah. That's how he died? Yes. Great. Yeah. And a bunch of guitarists came after that. Donnie Dacus and, yeah. you know, there's a bunch of them that was uh, was after that. And Keith Howland is the, the uh, current guitar player. But anyways, to get back to the story... Um, somehow they found out that I produced video. So I was invited the next year to produce the club uh, cool. video for the convention. Yeah. So I went through and I got a bunch of uh, concert footage and I interspersed that with the, the fan club video and it turned out fantastic. Did you get to shoot any live video where you added oh, yeah. an interview? Oh, yeah. So great. I was able to get backstage and rub elbows with these guys. I love and, that. And all... All the fans were like you goo goo about you know yeah. meeting these oh Jesus yeah. it's so and so and you know and I won't tell some of the stories which are pretty funny, <laughs> but, but they're still touring so I'm not going to get into that but they're just regular guys I mean when you yeah. you get backstage with them especially Bill, them yeah, yeah I mean they've been doing it for fifty two years now what was the like? singer's name. Uh, Peter Cetera oh, was okay. the original. He was great. I always loved his voice. Yeah, I mean, waiting they, for the break of day. Uh, <laughs> don't ruin it for me, Gordo. <laughs> I love <laughs> that song. <laughs> but they, uh, Jason Chef was their singer for thirty plus years. He was actually there longer than Cetera. Uh, oh, but that first record was Cetera. The first record, yeah. first sort of defined, six or seven or yeah, eight. Or, I don't know. He was sound. there for a while. Yeah. But Jason was actually. The son of um, Elvis's bass player, Jerry Chef. Come on! Yeah, yeah. So he's oh, got a nice. history, a family history himself. But there's a lot of stuff. But the the, the guys are just regular guys, and and it was always amazing to me that the fans were 
going crazy when they came in. I was yeah. like, Jesus, you know, these guys want to yeah. go home and have a hamburger. Yeah. Throw a hamburger. Well, in a way, they're like Ringo was like, yeah, they, yeah. the Beatles were like, oh, I just want to sit and have a smoke. Yeah, you sound just yeah. like him. Yeah. <laughs> do you I have as do much a, money as he does? Yeah. No, know. I can do a better George than Ringo. Oh. Stop trying to bring everything down to your own level. <laughs> it's immature. <laughs> Yeah, you're good, Gordo. Uh, you're in the wrong business, yeah, I think. I know, exactly. Doing podcasts. I can do Paul, too, but, you know, just happy Paul. <laughs> so, anyways, that's my story. That is, and you're sticking to it. Yeah, and that I, is I'm not going to tell the other stories. I mean, uh, well, see, so you played the accordion. You know, when I went to college in Wisconsin, they would have this, the accordions would play at this uh, nudist camp. <laughs> and you know what kind of music they play? Uh, this is going to be. Strip polka. Strip polka. I was, I was, <laughs> give me another minute, I would have got it. You know, that's why we don't have a minute because we're out of time. But, we're uh, out of time. I, I would be like holding myself down from when you started your polka story. Your, uh, the umpa. Yeah, the accordion story. Uh, but accordions are a thing of art. They are like, they are like modern art. I have a, an accordion and it was so beautiful. I bought it for 25 bucks at an auction just to put it on the wall yeah. in the shack no, museum. I get it, yeah. Yeah, and it, it had a leak in it, so it always would play this one note, whatever other notes it would play. <laughs> and so I'm not a player, but I just thought it was so beautiful that it deserved a piece of art on my wall to be a piece of art. Yeah, they're difficult to play, but yeah. if you can make music with yeah. them, you know. They're... Still got it? Oh, of course, Come yeah. on, play yeah, the play. Uh, ring it in for uh, uh, you know, uh. the company party. or uh... No, 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 no. <laughs> get the stripoka <laughs> thing going again. Oompa, yeah. oompa. The staff yeah. here, you know. <laughs> All right, Jim Capillo, Gordon Baird, we wows them, don't we? We know how to hose them down. <laughs> Thank you so much, Gloucester, for tuning in to Fish, Fish, the Barking Fish Town Loca. All right, come on, Gloucester, clean it up, will you? Come on, come on, come on. <laughs> <laughs>